Hey guys, it's Darren Goldwater, a play-by-play announcer and owner of Nellwater Sports, nellwatersports.com. I'm super pumped to partner up with the Say the Damn Score Nation to present to you this podcast. I Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 63 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. I'm Logan Anderson, a play-by-play broadcaster in South Dakota, and this podcast is dedicated to talking about the sportscasting industry with sportscasting professionals at all levels from around the country. Over the years, I've talked with broadcasters ranging from the local high school level to broadcasters of NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball teams. I've even landed a few network-level people. But this episode features far and away the most prominent guest in the show's history, as I was able to arrange to chat with the one and only Bob Costas of NBC Sports. I don't need to tell you this, but he's one of the most decorated broadcasters in the history of our medium. When I started this podcast, I literally created a tiered list in the back of a notebook that lists guests I know I can get on short notice, people that I might be able to land if the timing worked out right, and people who are likely to cause a fainting spell if I ever landed them on the show. There are four people on that last list, and he is the first person from that list to come on the show. He very generously talked for about an hour, but because I had initially planned on only having 30 minutes with him, I avoided certain follow-up questions and story expansions in favor of getting to the important points of his career. When he agreed to do another 30 minutes, I looped back to some of the stories and follow-ups that I would have asked earlier if I didn't think that we had time constrictions. So if the interview feels oddly sequenced, that's why. Anyway, you didn't download this to hear about the way the podcast was recorded. So without further ado, it's a great honor to welcome Bob Costas of NBC Sports onto the show. Bob, how are you doing today? Going well. I hope I live up to that honor and don't mess up your whole podcast. (laughs) That would be hard to do. I want to just start off when you got your first broadcasting position out of Syracuse. I've done a little bit of research onto this story, but it seems like there's a lot of different layers to it where you went from Syracuse to KMOX in St. Louis, Missouri. What was the break that got you there and in that position? Well, two breaks, actually. I got a job broadcasting minor league hockey in the old Eastern Hockey League, the Paul Newman Slapshot Movie League. In fact, I knew some of the people who were extras in the movie, and the film was made only a few years after uh, I broadcast in the league. I broadcast in the 73-74 season during what should have been my senior year at Syracuse and actually cut back on my credits uh, from 15 a semester to nine so that I'd be able to travel on the buses to all the exotic outposts of the Eastern Hockey League, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, Lewiston, Maine, and whatnot, picking up 30 bucks a game for doing these games. And then I thought I would go back and finish my degree in the fall of 1974, my class having graduated the preceding spring. And then I got a call from a friend of mine who I had known at Syracuse, and he transferred away from the school, and he found himself working with the Spirits of St. Louis of the ABA, who were a newly minted team. They had been the Carolina Cougars. Uh, They moved to St. Louis. They set up shop kind of quickly, and they would last for only the final two years of the ABA before they disappeared along with other ABA teams uh, following the merger, if you can call it that, with the NBA, where only four ABA teams got in, and they still exist, the Spurs, the Nuggets, the Pacers, and the Nets. But who knew? At that time, it seemed like a great adventure, and for me, it turned out to be that. And people who are younger have to be informed that there was a time in the mid-'70s and probably through the 80s and prior to that when before the Internet, before ESPN, before packages that would allow you to see every NBA game or every Major League Baseball game if you wanted to, the vast, vast majority of games were not even on local television. And only maybe one a week was on national television. And so your primary source was radio. And the handful of stations that were clear channel 50,000 watt stations, like WLW in Cincinnati, KDKA in Pittsburgh, uh, KMOX in St. Louis, 
Those stations had extraordinary prestige and extraordinary reach. They could be heard in two dozen states on most nights, and on some nights more than that if uh, the atmospheric conditions were clear. So getting a job at KMOX was maybe only half a notch beneath winding up on one of the networks and broadcasting nationally. And their roster of broadcasters proved that. Jack Buck was the reigning king of KMOX, but Dan Kelly, one of the great hockey announcers ever, did the Blues games. And Bob Starr, a name most of your viewers will not recognize, one of the greatest radio announcers for football I ever heard, did the Missouri games and also the St. Louis Cardinals, before they moved to Arizona, football games. And Joe Garagiola had been at KMOX. And Harry Carey had been at KMOX as the longtime voice of the Cardinals pairing with Jack Buck. And then later, Joe Buck was at KMOX, and Dan Deardorff was at KMOX. So going there was like going to a mecca of broadcasting. And when I found out about this opening with the Spirits, I thought was, well, I'm 22 years old. I look like I'm 14. And even though I have a tape of a game I broadcast on the campus station between Syracuse and Rutgers, a basketball game, I'd listen to it. And it was pretty good for a 19- or 20-year-old kid, but I didn't think it was KMOX-level quality, so I had to use some ingenuity. And I found maybe 10 sequences in the game that sounded like crisp, clean calls. And so I alternated them, Syracuse with the ball, Rutgers with the ball. And if it was necessary to edit out the score so that they seemed like uh, continuous sequences, then I edit out the score so it seemed like it was just a 10-minute chunk of the game. And then I re-recorded it, or had an engineer with more expertise than me re-record it with the bass up and the treble down to make me sound a bit older and a bit more authoritative. And then on a wing and a prayer, I sent it off to KMOX. And lo and behold, Jack Buck, who was one of the people who listened to it, and the people who ran the station were favorably impressed by it. They called me in for an interview, and I guess I didn't screw the interview up, and they hired me. And so I got the job as the voice of the Spirits of St. Louis, and even though the team only lasted for two years, I'd made a good impression with the people at KMOX, and KMOX was a CBS-owned and operated station. And shortly after that, uh, the CBS television network began using me on some of their smaller NFL games, regional games. They had the NBA then. If they had an NBA doubleheader, I might do the secondary game of an NBA doubleheader. And so I did that for a few years while still working at KMOX. And then somebody uh, at NBC noticed me, and they hired me full-time in 1980. Covering the spirits of St. Louis, I've seen the 30 for 30. I've read clips from the book Loose Balls where they talk about just the, the wildness of the league. What was that like as a broadcaster being part of that? What are a couple stories from that time that are arable for a podcast? Yeah. Well, it was an extraordinary experience, both on the court and off. The ABA was so freewheeling and so much fun. Was it crazy? Yes. And did many of the teams fail, disappear, go under financially? Yes. But it was a fraternity because of that. In fact, only recently in Indianapolis, I emceed the 50th reunion of the ABA. It was commemorating uh, the, the first season, which was 1967-68, and more than 100 former ABA players showed up, including Dr. J and George McGinnis and Rick Barry and George Iceman Gervin, Artis Gilmore, Dan Issel, people like that, Hall of Famers. Uh, so it really is something that we look back on with, with fondness, but also we have to laugh at some of the escapades, um, let's, let's think of what is arable. Well, people always want to hear the story about Marvin Barnes, who was a genuinely great player, All-American at Providence, drafted second behind only Bill Walton and, well, that's it, only Bill Walton by both the NBA and the ABA the year they both came out of college. And he winds up signing with the Spirits of St. Louis. And had Marvin, who has since passed away, uh, realized his full potential. There's no doubt in my mind that not only would he be a Hall of Famer, but he would have been among the 50 greatest players in NBA history that they announced at the All-Star Game on the 50th anniversary of the NBA in 1997. But he didn't even come close to that. Uh, he was self-destructive, although never unlikable. He was uh, very amusing and he had no malice in him, but uh, he also had not even a thimble's worth of maturity. So one story you can tell about Marvin, among many, I guess, we played in Louisville 
which is not that far, really, from St. Louis. You can probably drive it in less than five hours, but it's in the eastern time zone, and St. Louis is in the central time zone. So after the game is over, we meet at the airport, and this is before teams traveled by charter, so you got whatever commercial flight you could. So the traveling secretary, who also doubled as the trainer, hands out the itinerary, and it says, TWA Flight 305, depart Louisville 8 a.m., arrive St. Louis 756. And Marvin beckons to me, why he considered me the font of all knowledge, I'm not sure, but he beckons to me, I come over to him, he drapes an arm over my shoulder, looks down from more than a foot above me, brandishes this itinerary and says, bro, bro, do you see this? I say, yes. He goes, well, I don't know about you, but as for me, I am not getting on any time machine. <laughs> that's that's definitely unique, but that's I imagine seeing him play was something else. Him and wasn't Fly Williams on that team and a lot of old, yeah. uh, pretty much the entire roster of uh, the what-if type players uh, on, on one squad. Were there moments when everything came together and they showed that potential? Oh, yeah. In the first season, 74-75, the reigning champions of the league were Dr. J's Nets. And during the regular season, they beat us 11 straight times. We were 0-11 against them. Now we meet them in the first round of the playoffs. Fairly close game, game one in New York, but we lose it, as expected. So now we're 0 for 12 against them. And then everything comes together, and we win four straight games against them and take the defending champions out in five games. The next round, we play the Kentucky Colonels, who ultimately won the ABA title that year with Hubie Brown as their coach and the players I mentioned before making up the heart of the team. And we lose the first game at Freedom Hall in Louisville. Very close game. Had the lead in the last minute. Louis Dampier stole the ball. They got a basket, and we lose the game by one, I think, or two. Another close game, game two, we drop it. We go back to St. Louis down 0-2, win game three handily, and one of our best players, Freddie Lewis, who was an all-time ABA great and played on championship teams with the Pacers before he wound up with the Spirits, Freddie Lewis is having a great series, he's having a great game, and the Spirits are winning game four and about to even the series when he twists his ankle and goes out. They then lose game four, and then game five is the next night back in Louisville, and they get blown out without Freddie Lewis. And I think a young, immature team had pretty much given up at that point, down three games to one. But they were good enough to beat the defending ABA champions four straight and to take the team that ultimately would be that year's champion through a tough series that they could have taken to six or seven games and had at least some chance to win until Lewis got hurt. So it's a testament to how much talent there was on that team, but um, they could never sustain it. There was too much immaturity and too much dysfunction on the team. So the next year they uh, finished under 500, and St. Louis didn't draw well at all, so the NBA was not interested in having them be among the teams that they would take in. So they disappeared, and they're just a memory, but they're a fond and amusing memory. Being at KMOX when you were really young, among you know a murderer's row of broadcasters with a lot of experience and cachet, I read in Gary Bender's book that you had a hard time being on time and at times would turn down your phone so that people wouldn't talk to you. What were some of the other lessons that you learned uh, being among that type of group really early in your career? Well, the last part. I love Gary. He's a good man and a very good broadcaster. The last part is not true. I never turned down my phone. First of all, there were no cell phones then, so you would have to have turned down a landline. And I'm so technically inept, I can barely turn on a light. So how I would have figured out how to turn down my phone, I have no idea. Uh, however, I did have at that time a problem with punctuality. And it's a little bit of the, uh, the arrogance of youth thinking, well, I can walk in five minutes before. Now, I emphasize not five minutes before a game broadcast, but five minutes before a studio sportscast, and I can just take the material and ad-lib it and do it off the top of my head. I seldom wrote a script. I did it all off the top of my head. So maybe some of the old-timers were sweating, and then I would come sauntering through the door, and I would sit down and, and do it, and it probably uh, upset them a little bit that I would generally nail it and, and then walk out. And I thought nothing of it, and I had tremendous respect for uh, the people surrounding me. It was just kind of a, a youthful and immature view of things, and I didn't realize that I was ticking them off. They wanted to like me because 
Uh, I certainly was pleasant in every way and respectful in every way, but that was kind of uh, kind of a trait I had when I was in my 20s, and it, it irked some of the old-timers a little bit, but I grew out of it. Did you do anything specific to grow out of it, or did you just, you know, realize one day, this is something that I'm, I'm a professional now, I got to do this better? Well, buying a watch was helpful, I think. <laughs> you had a call in the 30 for 30 about the spirits of St. Louis, where you just lost your mind on a buzzer-beating shot. And I want to preface that with, you have been famous for nailing big moments in the biggest games ever since then. What did you learn from that moment where, I don't want to say you blew it, but it was still a good call, but you maybe, your voice cracked, you kind of went yeah. went nuts. What did you learn from that moment that you were able to use moving forward? Well, I was 22 years old, and I was obviously very excited by this, my first truly big, big-time moment in a major league sport in front of an audience like KMOX's audience. And if you listen to that call, the Spirits are down by one in what turned out to be the deciding game. They have the ball out of bounds with 15 seconds to go. They get it into Freddie Lewis, who just had an incredible series. And he takes it and never gives it up. He dribbles the time away until he takes Brian Taylor, who is one of the best guards in the ABA, a teammate of Dr. J's, takes him to the foul line, and he's all over him. And somehow Freddie shakes him and gets a jumper off and makes it. And that puts them up by one. And the Nets had no timeouts left, and you didn't have the rule then where the clock immediately stopped after a basket. So all they could do was throw it in and then throw up like a 70-foot shot uh, that was way off. So you knew as soon as the, the ball went through the net that the Spirits had not only won the game, but they'd won the series in the most improbable fashion. And if you listen to that call, which I haven't in a long time, but if you listen to the call, it's completely accurate until the ball goes through the net. I have no problem with the call at all, but when the ball goes through the net, my voice cracks and goes into a higher register just out of youthful excitement. So I guess what I learned, since it never happened again, I guess what I learned is that in big moments like that, you have to modulate your voice so that you have some place to go. You know, you listen to a lot of announcers today uh, in any sport, and they're at the same level on a base hit to left that makes the score one to nothing in the third inning on July 11th. Well, where do you have to go if you get a Bobby Thompson moment? The Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. You know, the best guide to this, as he so often is, is someone like Vin Scully, who's able to simultaneously be controlled and yet have inflection in his voice that reflects the drama and significance of the moment. So you listen to his call of Kirk Gibson's home run or Sandy Koufax's perfect game, which was a radio call, and you listen to all the build-up to it and all the anticipation because it took several minutes before the payoff. And then when the payoff comes, the Gibson home run, high fly ball, deep right field, she is gone! But he never loses it. He never loses it. You know, the ground ball to Buckner that goes through his legs, Little ground ball up along first, behind the bag. You know, he's, the surprise is heard in his voice. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. But he never loses it. But by the time he made those calls, he'd been doing baseball for decades, and he was a middle-aged man. I was a 22-year-old with nothing to compare it to. But once I did it, uh, I realized that while it was amusing, and people still remember it, at least that they were around then, not something you want to repeat. You want to get to a a greater level of maturity as a broadcaster, and I hope I did. You are the first person on this podcast that I've had on, and I've been doing it for over two years, who my wife actually recognized who you were. And that was because you've been doing the Olympics for so yeah. long, obviously not doing that anymore. But how did you end up with the job doing the Olympics, and how did that affect your career? Well, as much as I admired Jim McKay, who was the voice and face of the Olympics, as I was growing up, I never thought of myself as an Olympic host. In fact, I never even thought of myself primarily as a studio host. I thought of myself as a play-by-play -play guy. But when Bryant Gumble went off to do the Today Show, um, my star was rising a little bit at NBC. And Mike Weissman, who then ran NBC, said, you know, we think you can host the NFL show. And I explained to him that I had virtually no studio experience. And in fact, the first five years after he convinced me to do it, 
the first five years that I hosted the NFL show on NBC, we never used a teleprompter. I ad-libbed everything. The first time I ever used a teleprompter was in 1988 uh, at the Olympics in Korea when I was a late-night host, and they brought Bryant back from news uh, to be the primetime host. And the reason they explained to me why we had to use a teleprompter was that there were times when they wanted to roll in visuals, so-called B-roll, that matched what I was saying. So even though I, to this day, when using a teleprompter, often ad-lib in and around it and put in parenthetical things, and there are times when I'm not using the prompter at all, and the trick is to make people not know the difference between a, one situation or the other, um, we did begin to use the teleprompter at that point just so that we could have a more modern-day synchronization between video and, and audio. Uh, so I really never thought of myself as someone who would work in a studio, and I worked in a way that was different than many people did. But the late-night assignment in 1988 in Korea worked out extremely well. And they then decided that I should be, since I was a full-time sports guy and Bryant was not, that I should be the primetime host starting in Barcelona in 1992. And I didn't know how it would work out, and I knew that there were big shoes to fill or to follow. Uh, but it did work out very well, and it was very well received. And the next thing you know, I wind up doing 11 of them in primetime and 12 total until I decided uh, a few years ago, even though it wasn't publicly known until after Rio, I decided that Rio would, would be my, my last one. And then NBC wisely, knowing that, went out and hired Mike Tirico, who was a very able successor. The Olympics being... I mean, the premier event in the world and spotlighting so many different athletes doing so many things that I'm sure you're not entirely familiar with. Of course. And I want to partner that with you have a quote that says the key to being a good sportscaster is being both simultaneously well, well prepared and spontaneous. Mm. How are you able to do that in those situations where you don't have that knowledge? How, what's your prep process? Well, my approach in the Olympics is this the host the main host, should be a good generalist. They don't expect you to be an expert about the luge. They don't expect you to know everything about uh, the pole vaulting competition. They do expect you to know the broad storylines, the most important storylines. They expect you to know the history, the significant history of the Olympics. Not every bit of minutiae, but the significant history. They expect you to have a grasp on the geopolitics that surround an Olympics and the fact that there was an Olympics in Rome in 1960. And if that comes up off the top of your head, you should be able to reference that that was Muhammad Ali and Cassius Clay's Olympics, that Jerry West played in that Olympics, that Abibi Bakila ran in that Olympics. That sort of information should be in your head, first by preparation and then just by osmosis from having done all of these Olympics. It should occur to you as you see Michael Johnson run, if you've done your uh, homework, that he, he, he runs in kind of an upright fashion reminiscent of Jesse Owens in 1936 in Berlin. And you should know something about the 36 Olympics in Berlin or the 68 Olympics in Mexico City beyond what happened at the competition because there were overriding political and, and social dynamics at work there. And then you need to be able to take a briefing. If somebody comes out of nowhere who's unexpected and wasn't on your radar in your months of preparation leading up to an Olympics, we have very good researchers. And part of the trick for a good host is to be able to look at this material, take a briefing quickly, understand what's important to emphasize out of this reams of information, what's important to the casual person watching in Omaha, and is there any historical perspective or context of this Olympics to put it in? You've got to be able to do that spontaneously. So that's, that's what I mean. And that's true if you're doing a baseball game or a basketball game or whatever. You're prepared for what might be expected or for what you might use. But you only use a portion of what you've prepared. You might have 100 different things prepared for a baseball broadcast. You might use 20 of them. You're just not 100% certain 
which of the 20 will fit at any given time. And then there's always the possibility that something you could not have anticipated will happen. And you have to be willing to throw away all that preparation and just go with what's unfolding in front of you. And then you rely on your experience as a broadcaster and whatever store of knowledge you might have uh, that you could bring to bear to bring some insight or some humor or whatever it might be to the situation that you didn't expect, but now there it is right in front of you. You're really eloquent when you try to mix, you know, politics into your sports coverage, as you mentioned with uh, the Mexico City Olympics and the Berlin Olympics having that that backstory. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? What's the key to doing that so eloquently, mixing in politics without offending half of your audience inside of your broadcast? Well, I'm sure that I've offended some. In fact, I'm certain I've offended some now and then. There are people who say, uh, stick to sports. You should never mix politics with sports. I don't know how you can do an Olympics. I'm not pushing a political agenda. I'm noting pertinent facts. Uh, I just think of one, and there are many. When China came marching in during the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, It was pertinent, important, I think, to mention that here is China reemerging on the international sports stage after many years being on the outside looking in. They have a very large contingent of world-class athletes. They hope one day to host an Olympics. In fact, they put in a bid for 2000, but a number of concerns, including human rights violations, kept them from securing those Olympics, and those Olympics will be held uh, in Sydney, Australia in 2000. And if there is any country that has an opportunity to replicate what the old Soviet Union did, this was just after the Soviet Union had broken up, what the old Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries did in creating a sports machine that was state-run and state-sponsored, you're looking at the nation that is capable of doing this and might have an incentive to do it. And in fact, some 27, I think the number was, of Chinese athletes who had competed in international competitions over the last two years are not here in Atlanta. And speculation is that concern about more stringent drug testing might account for some of those absences. That was a very important point to make, and I would make it again. And subsequent events bore out the fact that those points were relevant. Did some people object to that? Yeah, I guess some people did. But that doesn't mean it wasn't the right thing to say. Now, you wouldn't say that about Bulgaria, because Bulgaria didn't have the significance on the world stage. They couldn't do what China was potentially capable of doing. Uh, you You wouldn't say it about Latvia. It just wouldn't apply. You don't throw in every possible statement that you could make. It has to rise to some level of significance. I remember one time when Saudi Arabia came in, in the Parade of Nations, and the IOC had made a big deal, rightly so, about their intention to move as close as possible to 50-50, female athletes among male athletes. And I said, in light of that, it might be worth noting, there is not a single woman in the Saudi Arabian delegation. That's all. Move on. You know, and you never do it. You never do it, Logan. And there's a big difference here that some people just cannot seem to grasp. When you are doing play-by-play of a game, maybe if you're doing a baseball game and some guy who's connected to steroids passes Willie Mays on the all-time home run list, you can note that briefly. But you don't go on at any length when you are calling a game. Al Michaels' job on Sunday Night Football, which he did magnificently and does magnificently, was different from my job on the pregame show and at halftime. I not only respect the game and what the broadcast is supposed to be, I enjoy sports. I enjoy the drama and theater of sports. So I never intruded upon the action itself. If I ever talked about anything besides the competition, It was during a time when the competition was not taking place and a small window had been carved out. Some of those small windows you fill with self-deprecation and, you know, a little bit of humor. How do you pick the moments to put that into a broadcast? I don't think you pick them. You just feel them. They just happen. You know, they just happen. 
sometimes you can do it during a live broadcast. Uh, it's just what feels right um, and what you feel comfortable doing. And sometimes it's dependent to some extent on who you're working with. Will they get it? Will they take it and run with it? Will they bounce something back to you? It's all just a kind of feel thing. Before we get to a couple different listener-submitted questions, it's time to take a quick break and hear a message from the very first sponsor of the Save the Damn Score podcast. Hey guys, Darren Goldwater again of Nellwater Sports. I've been a play-by-play announcer on the regional and national level for the last 15 years, so I know exactly like you how hard it is to actually have executives see and hear your work. That's why I created Nellwater Sports. We're a demo reel production company specializing in putting your best foot forward. Our clients have earned jobs in the NHL, AHL, AAA baseball. Others have advanced to the regional and national level calling collegiate sports. Some others have catapulted over 50 radio market sizes. Check us out, NellWaterSports.com. Mention this ad and get $50 off your first reel. That's NellWaterSports.com. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. So I want to take a moment kind of open it up for some of the listeners of the podcast to send in some questions. So I'm going to go through a couple of those. And I guess the first one is from John Little. And he says, what are a few things that separate a mid-level broadcaster from a network-level broadcaster? Well, I don't know if the distinction is always network. There are a lot of people working locally who are better than some people on networks. A lot of people, I can be driving... uh, through a a relatively small town and listen to a minor league baseball game, and I can say, this guy is going to be in the major leagues someday. Or, although he had long network stints at various times, you know, Vin Scully was doing Dodger games. He wasn't doing network games. You listen to Tom Hamilton do the Cleveland Indians games. Boy, what a good announcer he is. Or Dave O'Brien doing the Boston Red Sox games. What a terrific announcer he is. And that's just a couple of examples. Uh, so I don't think it's a question of where you rank in terms of local or network, but I think what separates in general a middling or competent announcer from someone who stands out is some level of personality that comes through without overwhelming the broadcast, but something distinctive that takes the person beyond the generic, an awareness of the moment, an ability to rise to those truly big occasions, not just I'm going to push the excitement button here no matter what, or I'm going to go into my trademark call no matter what, but an ability to put a singular stamp on a specific moment. A sense of humor helps, and usually since you're not working alone, the ability to relate well to various partners helps. And an awareness of the situation, an awareness of history, yes, Preparation for the specific event, yes, but the ability spontaneously to pivot and go where the event takes you. I think those things are among the things that separates the merely good from the better than good. What is your most memorable pop culture crossover moment, whether it's being in a movie, being name-dropped on a song? What are some of them that stand out to you as particularly memorable? Well, perhaps my favorite, in the early days of David Letterman, he used to use me and Marv Albert in mock sportscasting situations. And there was a time, it was his third anniversary show, so it would have been 1985, and they staked me and, coincidence of coincidences, uh, one, one of my uh, future antagonists, Vince McMahon of the then World Wrestling Federation, now WWE, they staked each of us out at a hospital, in the maternity ward of a hospital. And if a baby was born at either of those hospitals during the taping of the show, then that baby would be christened unofficially as the late-night baby and would receive all manner of, uh, of rewards for that. And come to think of it, that baby, and there was one born at McMahon's Hospital, That baby, if my math is correct, is now 33 years old. Uh, Supposedly, they had lifelong benefits and a big ceremony. So anyway, they have me at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. And so we set the scene, and there was no script, and we were ad-libbing. And I, I think I said something like, so, Dave, that's the preliminary situation, and we'll be back with all the pre- and post-natal action. 
And Dave liked that and laughed at it. And then as the taping proceeded, a baby was in fact born at McMahon's hospital. So that baby became the official late night baby. And McMahon did his report. And then they threw it back to me. And it's funny you should ask this question, Logan, because I swear to you, only yesterday I was at a movie premiere and a guy sitting behind me tapped me on the shoulder. I'd never met him before. And he recited what I'm about to tell you verbatim and got it right to within a comma. Why it stuck in his head, I don't know. But they threw it back to me. David says, well, let's get one final report from Bob Costas at Lenox Hill. And here I am standing in some sort of waiting room at the maternity ward. And here's all the doctors in their white coats and the nurses and the orderlies. And they're all wearing party hats and there's cake and they've got noisemakers and balloons and whatnot. And I'm holding a cigar because they were ready to hand the father a cigar if, in fact, the baby had been born. And I'm holding the cigar and I say, David, no baby yet. But nonetheless, the party continues apace. Meanwhile, just down the hall, the desperate cries, but no, I'm sorry, the plaintive cries. Meanwhile, just down the hall, the plaintive cries of desperately ill men and women go unheeded. And for whatever reason, Letterman found that hysterically funny, and he threw his head back and laughed. And that kind of sealed the deal with me and David, and I came on, I don't know how many times after that, doing various bits and sometimes just as a sit-down guest. We are at 33 minutes. I have a couple more things. Okay. If I had to, with the XFL coming back, it's being uh, talked about uh, making a return. If you had to play, would you rather? Would you rather be in Basketball 2 or cover the second iteration of the XFL? I'd rather be in Basketball 2 through 22. (laughs) Um, One of the other listener questions comes from Clay Abels. Who are the right people to make connections with? for play-by-play jobs, other announcers, directors, or people involved with schools? I think it's a combination of things. Without being obnoxious or overbearing, I think you just play the law of averages. Uh, you try to make connections with other announcers, and if you have a relationship, and you know all of us are kind of busy and can't accommodate every request, but if you have a relationship with somebody, you can ask them for their advice, you can ask them to review your tapes, but you also shouldn't be shy about sending out your tapes to minor league baseball teams, to Division II schools for their basketball and football job. Uh, ESPN has a zillion platforms. You've got regional sports networks. You've got FS1 uh, and all that sort of thing. Just send all of your materials, all your resumes out, and don't be picky about what your first job is. Generally speaking, someone looking for his or her first job is not married doesn't have children, and doesn't have to make a certain amount of money just to, to provide for them. Uh, they can accept a relatively low-paying job. And so you shouldn't say to yourself, my ultimate role or goal is to be on network television or to be the voice of a major league baseball team or an NBA team. Therefore, I'm not going to take this job in Tacoma or in Tuscaloosa. No, that's wrong. You should take the job in Tacoma or Tuscaloosa because it builds your resume and it also builds your experience. This is a profession that certainly where certainly you can benefit from scholastic uh, experience, but you really only learn by doing. You hone your craft by doing it, and you also find out, as harshly realistic as this may sound, you find out whether you're suited for it or not. Some people are well-suited to it. Others, no matter how smart and dedicated they are, just don't have the knack. If you have the knack, you can develop it. If you don't have the knack, you ought to find that out early and then (laughs) seek another path. So the very first time I remember seeing you on TV, and I don't mean to uh, uh, kind of showcase my youth here, I was nine, and it was the 1995 NBA Finals, Mm -hmm. and I remember being furious that you guys were going to a split screen because I wanted to see the game and I didn't understand all the O.J. Simpson stuff. But in hindsight, learning about that and being part of that moment, how surreal was that feeling and what was going through your head on how to balance that story and the broadcast? Yeah, it was certainly surreal. That's an apt word to apply. It was Game 5 of the 1994 NBA Finals, and the Rockets and Knicks were tied at two apiece, so it's an important game. The Knicks, as it turned out, won that game in front of a home crowd at Madison Square Garden. The murders of... Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson had taken place on Sunday night. 
This was the following Friday. By that time, it's become obvious, and in fact the police have said it, that O.J. Simpson is first a suspect and then they want to arrest him. And that afternoon, they had announced that he was, as they put it, a fugitive from justice. Uh, They went looking for him to arrest him, and he disappeared. So that is a story, if you have any sense at all, no matter how big the NBA Finals may be, think about it. If you talk to somebody who was around then about O.J. Simpson that night, their shock about hearing about the murders to begin with, and then hearing that O.J. was a suspect and then the primary suspect, and then the Bronco chase that followed, and the crazy trial and the reaction subsequent to the trial. What is more of a benchmark, for better or worse, in American history and pop culture? O.J., or with all due respect, Kareem Olajuwon, Patrick Ewing, Rudy Tomjanovich, and Pat Riley, and the Rockets and the Knicks. Important NBA final. Not iconic. Not something that everyone remembers where they were. And you have to be able to realize in the moment, if possible, you know, what's what. So when every other network is going full with their coverage of this, we had to make a decision, not mine to make, but a decision I think that NBC handled well, which was to occasionally switch from Madison Square Garden, where Marv Albert was calling the game, to Tom Brokaw, and then occasionally have the Bronco chase up in a quarter quadrant of the screen while the game was going on on three quarters of the screen. Because at that time, none of us knew what might happen. Is it possible that the police would apprehend him right on the 405? Is it possible once he got back to his house in Brentwood and got out of the car, um, since A.C. Cowlings was saying that he had a gun and was holding it to his head, is it possible he could have committed suicide right there on the driveway? Is it at least possible, small possibility, that there'd be a shootout with the police? Nobody knew. And so we had to be ready at a moment's notice to switch to that scene. And I think we handled it as well as we could and proportionately as we could. And keep in mind that at that time, people didn't have cell phones where you could get streaming video or automatically tap into this stuff. So people were wandering out into the corridors at Madison Square Garden to look up at TVs suspended over the concession stands. Or some people were leaning over my shoulder to try and look at the monitor that I had in my little perch at Madison Square Garden. This was a completely different set of circumstances than you would have today. And it was my job to kind of move it back and forth between the game, where understandably people were into the game and they're cheering and there's a lot of excitement and and anticipation there, and then moving it to this kind of, as Tom Brokaw put it, Shakespearean tragedy that was playing out with O.J. Simpson. So it wasn't just you're moving from one topic to another. You're moving from one tone to another, and those tones are entirely different. Um, Looking back on it, I mean, I haven't seen the full tape of it. I've seen some of the excerpts that have shown up in documentaries uh, about that night. I think that we struck the right tone. Um, I'm pretty sure we did. I read that O.J. Simpson tried to call you from the back of the Bronco. and. I obviously it went to the studio. You weren't there. You were at the garden. But what would you have said had hypothetically an alternate universe where you were able to take that call? Yeah, I didn't learn about that until months later. Uh, I was unaware until I visited OJ um, in the L.A. County Jail. I think in November of 1994, before the trial began, and that's the one and only time I've seen OJ Simpson since 1994. And he and A.C. Cowlings told me that in fact they had tried to call me from the back of the Bronco. They called my house in St. Louis. No one was home and there was no answering machine. Um, and then they called the studio because O.J. had the studio number because he was part of our coverage of the NFL. But unlike most of our NBA coverage, we were not in the studio at 30 Rock. We were at the scene of the game. And no one answered the phone. Uh, and he tried it again and eventually a tech answered and he said, I need to speak to Bob Costas, and the tech said, well, he's not here. I need to speak to him right away. He's at Madison Square Garden. I have to speak to him right away. Who's calling? O.J. Simpson. Yeah, right, click. And the guy hung up on him. Now, had he reached me, I think after you got past the 
initial greeting, if that's the right word, and assuring him that your thoughts were with him one way or the other, I think it would have been my obligation to say, O.J., do you want to go on the air? Um, you know, he had a, an old-style cell phone or car phone. Do you want to go on the air with us? And if he did, then I would have had to ask him gently, because you didn't know what kind of emotional state he was in. Obviously, it wasn't a good one. Uh, you'd have to ask him, O.J., did you do this? Were you in any way involved in these murders? And if his answer was no, why then, given the wherewithal that you have and you're standing with the American public, why wouldn't you just stay and defend yourself, proclaim your innocence, get proper representation, and defend yourself? Do you realize that what you're doing now appear to most people, appears to most people, to be the actions of a guilty man? A guilty man doesn't run. A guilty man doesn't have 10 grand on him. A guilty man doesn't hold a gun to his head, unless the reason you're doing it is that you're so distraught over the death of your former wife with whom you're still involved. I think all those questions would have been presented in as gentle a way as possible. Gentle not because I was necessarily sympathetic to him, but because you wouldn't want to lose him. You'd want to keep him on the air as much as, as, much as possible. Um, and obviously he was calling me because he considered me to be a friend and someone who might be in some sense sympathetic to him. Uh, and so I would have had to have maintained that trust, but at the same time tried to serve the public by getting to some aspect of the story. Now, if that had happened, that would have been one of the most memorable moments in television history, no matter what his answers were. But it never happened. Is there any event that you haven't broadcasted that you would like to? You've done so many huge events. Is there anything on your bucket list, so to speak, that you wish you had that you haven't? You know, I'm frequently asked that question, and I think people misunderstand my answer. I'm not a golf guy. I've done um, President's Cup, Riders' Cup, U.S. Open when NBC had it, and kind of a ceremonial role, bring it on the air, do the occasional interview thing. But I'm not immersed in golf, and so it's not as if the golf world desperately needs me. But I think it being such uh, a traditional event, uh, an event that has so much uh, history to it, I think most broadcasters would like to put a check mark next to the Masters, but that's not me lobbying to be part of the Masters. There really is no justification for it, um, and it's not that big of a deal to me. But I, when people ask me, is there something you haven't done, I guess that's just about the only thing. But really what's more important to me is to do the things I have done that I most enjoy and feel most connected to, to continue to do them on my own terms, and do them as well as I'm capable of doing them. Uh, I've listened to broadcasts, my baseball broadcasts, from the 80s and 90s just to try to get a feel for things. You're always trying to get better. And the games I do now on the Major League Baseball Network, well, by and large, they're good. They aren't consistently at the same level as what I did in the 80s and 90s on NBC. And so my focus now is primarily on baseball and to try to get back to my A game consistently, and then maybe somewhere down the road, I would uh, consider doing the kind of show that I used to do on HBO, or that I used to do when NBC still did programs like this, when they had true news magazines, or when they would devote time to sports issues or to long-form interviews. I like long-form interviews. I like journalistic stuff. I like commentary and essays where appropriate. Uh, and there really isn't much of a place on network television to do that. And so you've got to find the right place in exactly the right circumstances. If that came along, I would do that again. What do you do at your point in the career to get better at calling a baseball game? What are you listening for in your own tape? I'm it's a good question. I'm listening for pace. I'm listening for rhythm. I'm listening for vocal variety. I'm listening for should I have held that point off for the sixth inning or the seventh inning? Now, one thing that is different now from the 80s and 90s is that there's so many more bells and whistles. Strike zone box, exit velocity, stat cast this, graphic that, 12 replays of a 
play that really isn't that significant. So it gets in the way of some of the storytelling. When you think of it at the other extreme, if you think of the games that Vin Scully did just locally for the Dodgers over the last decade or so before his retirement, I used to stay up late and watch some of those games. And there was so little clutter. They would only replay an interesting play or a spectacular play or a disputed play. There wasn't a replay of a two-and-one pitch that if it got the corner, made it two-and-two, and and if it was called outside, made it three-and-one. And if Vin was telling a story, there was never a shot or a replay or a graphic that distracted the audience in any way from the story he was telling. Well, that's not the way modern network broadcasts work. I'm not blaming anybody for it. It's just what it's evolved to. So now you've got to navigate your way around several elements in the broadcast, in addition to the fact that you're working with another person who has something worthwhile to say, and usually there's a third person down on the field, and there are always lots of drop-ins during the game uh, to mention sponsors and Pitching changes are sponsored, and replay reviews are sponsored. And a lot of that gets in the way of the kind of approach that worked effectively for me with Tony Kubek in the 80s or with Bob Uecker and Joe Morgan in the 90s. And you have to figure out how do you adapt to this? What concessions do you need to make, and how do you navigate it? How has broadcasting changed uh, since you started? Could we have another Vin Scully uh, theoretically someone who's there forever so iconic and does things in his own unique way or are we past that point well let's use vin scully as an example you start out and this is the most important part of it you start out with a singular and unique talent but let's say that same talent came along today or even someone who was 75 percent as good the same talent could not achieve the same level of esteem and accomplishment And someone who was 75% as good could not even be 75% as good because the circumstances would not allow. Some of the circumstances are what I just described. All of the kind of overwhelming production of modern television, which doesn't sideline the announcer or make them unimportant, but it alters the announcer. The announcer is not as primary as he used to be. But then there's also this. If Vin Scully, and I say this with respect, if Vin Scully had been the voice of the Cincinnati Reds, now the Cincinnati Reds' longtime voice, Marty Brenneman, is in the Hall of Fame, and rightly should be. But if Vin had been the voice of the Cincinnati Reds, no matter how great he was, it wouldn't have had the same impact, because the team he is associated with is one of the most historic teams in baseball history. He's associated with Jackie Robinson's Dodgers, who went to the World Series or contended for it almost every year from the time he joined that team. And he was a protege of Red Barber. And then when the team moves west, he introduces an entire fan base to baseball. They grow up listening to him. And almost no games were on television. So they're listening to him on the radio. People are bringing radios first to the Coliseum and then to Dodger Stadium to listen to Vin while they're watching the games. And at that time, baseball was still the undisputed national pastime. When he goes to network television in the 80s and teams with Joe Garagiola on NBC, World Series games were still routinely getting ratings in the high 20s and in the mid-30s even if you got to the sixth or seventh game. So cumulatively, a seven-game World Series got more viewers than a Super Bowl would get. And he puts his stamp brilliantly on big moments so that he has a national profile. Then he goes back to the Dodgers, and he's developed a relationship, not just with a generation of fans, but with multiple generations of fans. A guy could be 60 years old and literally say, I've been listening to Vin Scully since I was a little kid. That's what baseball sounds like to him. So he gets the combination, not only of Scully's great skill, which would be noteworthy if you first encountered him doing the Toledo Mud Hens, but of a warmth and an affection and a personal connection that builds up over time in a way that only a local announcer can match. A network announcer, no matter how skillful, no matter how accomplished, cannot have the same relationship with the audience that a local announcer does. So the combination of his great skill, 
his distinctive style, the longevity, doing it for some 67 years, doing it on both coasts in big cities, New York and Los Angeles, having that kind of following, having enough of a network presence at one time so the whole nation knew him, and then you get to the end of his career, and it's a situation where if people really want it, they can get the baseball package. So a lot of people from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon, are able to listen to Vin call an otherwise not-so-important game between the Dodgers and Padres on some summer night in July, and they're listening to it for the pure pleasure of listening to Vin, and he's able to call upon, not just by knowledge, but by personal memory, he's able to call upon a story about Branch Rickey, even as he talks about the modern-day front office of the Dodgers. That's a combination of circumstances that no announcer today, no matter how skilled and no matter how willing to work hard, no announcer could possibly match that. There's too much to compete with it. There's too many highlight shows. There's too many things that divert our attention. There's too much noise and clutter. When Vin Scully said on every broadcast from the 1950s right up until a couple of years ago when he stepped aside, pull up a chair, that conjures up a whole different notion and a whole different time. But yeah, for a couple hours, which it was back in the 50s and 60s, maybe for three hours by the time Vin's career ended, I'm just going to pull up a chair. I'm just going to relax. I'm going to take in a ball game, and Vin Scully's going to help me enjoy it. If Vin Scully was 25 years old today, he'd still be great, and he'd wind up in the Hall of Fame, but it couldn't have the same impact. Okay, well, I got two more questions that we'll go with. Okay. The, one of them I ask everyone who comes on the show. And what is your broadcast horror story? And that's where something went horribly wrong with your equipment, your location, uh, just something involved with your broadcast that was a nightmare at the time, but you can look back and laugh at now. Well, I mean, the most obvious one is, of all the terrible timing, to get pink eye, or more accurately, viral conjunctivitis, on the eve of the 2014 Sochi Olympics. Now, all of the ridiculous theories that bounced around the internet and, and other places about how I got it are 100% wrong. I have no idea how I got it, but none of it is nearly so interesting as what people speculated. But in any case, I got it. It wasn't my fault that I got it. I tried for five or six nights to do the best I could. I wore glasses to disguise it, but you couldn't really disguise it. And I've said this before in other places. Look, We've all gone to work. You have, we all have, feeling less than our best. It's what a professional does. If I just felt lousy and had the stomach flu or something, you just soldier through it and no one has to know. If you had a broken leg, it's in a cast, it's under the desk, nobody has to know. But this was literally written on my face. But I felt an obligation to all the people who had worked so hard. It isn't just those two and a half, three weeks during the Olympics. They work for years in preparation, traveling around the globe to put together features, putting together extensive research manuals. Some of these people work 18, 20-hour days, truly, during an Olympics, and the primetime host is kind of carrying the ball for them. And I felt an obligation to them to hang on and do the best that I could because no one else was prepared to do exactly the job that I was doing. The people who speculated wrongly, all people who don't know anything about me or anything about how this works, that I just wanted to be there because that's a big exposure deal. Hey, by that time, I'd done 10 Olympics. If I'd had my personal choice, I certainly would have rather been out of sight and out of mind looking the way I did and feeling the way I did. I did it because I thought it was the professional thing to do. I lasted for five or six days, and then my eyes became so light-sensitive that I couldn't uh, be in the studio any longer, so I had to step aside for a while. And then it wasn't fully cleared up until several weeks after the Olympics, but when it got back to the point where I could function, I came back and did the last five or six nights of the Olympics. But I, I did it out of, out of a sense of professional obligation and for no other reason. Last question, not really a question, just kind of a statement, is you're known for giving back to the broadcasting industry. There's a scholarship for the Newhouse School at Syracuse in your yeah, name. Yeah, the first winner was Mike Tarico. <laughs> did you talk to him about that when you passed I, the torch? 
after the fact, after the fact, when they told me when we established the scholarship and when Mike was the first winner, I went up to Syracuse to meet him. Uh, he remembers it this way, and I take him at his word, that I said, I want to make sure that whoever gets this isn't a knucklehead, so I need to check you out. And he was anything but a knucklehead. He was a future superstar broadcaster. And so I actually saw you speak at the National Sports Media Association seminar. I think it was like 2014 or 15. I don't remember yeah. specifically, but... You know, I just, you don't have to do shows like this. You don't have to help other people out. And I just wanted to kind of thank you on behalf of everyone for being so, you know, open and helpful to other broadcasters. Uh, you're welcome. When I arrived on the scene, I had such regard, even reverence, for the people who had preceded me. And it meant so much to me when they acknowledged me or offered an encouraging word. And so I've tried. It's not possible in every case because. The world has expanded to the point where there's so many broadcasters and so many outlets and so many ways they can get in touch with you. Um, I, I wish I could give fuller attention to each and every one of them, but I've tried through the years to do what I would hope others would have done for me when I was in the same position. So it's just a, a pay it forward kind of thing, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who does it. Once again, we are visiting with Bob Costas, the uh, from NBC Sports on the Say the Damn Score podcast. And, Bob, thank you so much again. What is the damn score right now, Logan? <laughs> it is uh, uh, one to nothing. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please subscribe to the show and any or all of its social media platforms by clicking on the big red button on the top of com. I also appreciate iTunes reviews or any kind of honest feedback that can help me make the show even better. I would also like to take a quick moment to thank the sponsor of this podcast episode, Nellwater Sports. Please support them and visit NellWaterSports.com today. Thanks for listening to the show. I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more. Hi, this is Joel Morgan, the voice of Valley City State University in Valley City, North Dakota. I think it's safe to say that every broadcaster's goal is to be the best they can be at their craft. But just like anything else, if you don't have a game plan, it's hard to execute. Looking to set my goals for the upcoming season, I submitted my audio to the critique crew at SaveTheDamnScore.com. Within a week, I got back a written critique which included areas of improvement, my strengths, and a fresh set of ideas to help improve my broadcast. With the help of the critique crew at SaveTheDamnScore.com, I now have a game plan for improvement. So I suggest if you're looking to get better, step up your game and get a fresh set of ears on your play-by-play, -play, visit SaveTheDamnScore.com today.